Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Little, little water be brought, wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening to the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. God's word. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to this story drawn out of the history of the world and your history of interacting with, with us human, humans, Lord, I pray that you give us understanding. Help us to see and understand what is happening here, even though it may not be spelled out for us very clearly. Give us your spirit so that we may hear with ears of faith and see with eyes of faith. In Christ's name, amen. There's something about this text, um, and you maybe even heard it in the way that I prayed it, something that was puzzling to me as I read it and studied it earlier in the week. In fact, I, you know, there's some text in Genesis that I've been really anticipating getting to uh, with, with sort of excitement because I knew that, uh, how crucial they were. This just wasn't one of them. There's no... Um, it kind of felt like an unnecessary chapter or first part of the chapter. There's no new information disclosed in the dialogue or in the editorial comments. Uh, and, and at first glance, when I, when I first read it, as I was reading through the, the, the uh, Genesis, all I was seeing was, oh, God's eating and he repeats himself. He didn't have to have a meal with Abraham. He's God. He doesn't have to eat. He doesn't even need to be walking where the way that he's walking. He's on his way to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, as we'll see next week. He's on his way to, to judgment, but he walks by this way. He doesn't have to do that. It's kind of unnecessary. This is kind of a pit stop. 
And then when he does have this meal, what he reveals in the meal isn't new for us. He just repeats what he told us in chapter 17. That's it. That's, that's verses 1 through 15. The Lord eats, and the Lord repeats himself. So the question I had was, why is this seemingly redundant and what could be an unnecessary passage, why is this included in Genesis? And as I prayed about it and studied it and read elsewhere in the scriptures that shed light on previous scriptures, I found two things that I think are really important for us to to see today. The first is this. What we see here is the friendship of God toward Abraham. And the second is this, the grace of God toward Sarah. Genesis, as we have come to understand, is a whole lot more show than tell. So it's imperative that we watch what is unfolding with, with uh, gospelized eyes. So let's look at this, this uh, friendship that the Lord shows towards Abraham first. And as I was thinking about friendship, it kind of occurred to me, probably you as well, friendship has had it rough in the last couple decades, hasn't it? Our um, hyper-sexualized culture has made friendship weird. It's, um, it's made people of the same sex spending time with one another suspicious. We used to be able to read the story of David and Jonathan and think nothing of it. These guys are friends. And now if you were to go over to SDSU and you were to read the story of David and Jonathan to a college student and ask them what's going on in that story, they would not recognize it as friendship. Add to that the confusion that isolation has brought from our our modern technology and add to that the polarizing effects of the last few years. And what you end up with with is a statistic, uh, actually statistic after statistic, showing us that people don't have as many close friends as they used to. And at the same time, social media has elevated the level of all your acquaintances to friend. So the category of actual friendship, two men or two women who love one another and trust one another and enjoy spending time together over a good meal just because they're friends, that's that's an endangered species. And yet that concept of true friendship is a biblical concept. James says in, in chapter 2 of, of, uh, of his letter that Abraham was a friend of God. Actual friend. Now where did James get that? Because it doesn't say it in Genesis, does it? You don't see that word here. Friend. Who was it that actually called Abraham a friend of God? Well, James didn't get it from Genesis. Moses never tells us that Abraham and the Lord are friends, but James is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41 says, Jacob is the chosen offspring of the Lord's friend, Abraham. And so when I look to this text this morning, then I am looking for friendship. And we see it, don't we? We see evidence of the friendship between the Lord and Abraham in our text. When the Lord sits down to eat a meal at someone's home, he does that as a friend. 
When we eat a meal in someone's home, we usually do that as friends. Same thing here. I want you to see a few things about this unique friendship and how it comes about. Notice that the friendship of chapter 18 between the Lord and Abraham comes after the events of chapter 17. Remember, this is all in order. Moses is not just throwing a bunch of stories on the, on, on the poster board and let them stick. This is one story, one big story the, in the entire book of Genesis, and everything comes in its uh, in spirit-inspired order. So in chapter 17, there was some question that we had as to whether Abraham would be able to stay within that covenant. But God reassured him by pointing him forward to the promised offspring. The big, shining cross of last week that was out in front of us. By the grace of God, Abraham's hope was thus no longer in himself, but in the Lord who was bringing the promise. And in response to that grace that Abraham has been shown, he's different than he was in chapter 17. Excuse me. In chapter 17, he, if you remember, what was his reaction when the Lord spoke? He fell on his face twice in response to the word of the Lord. But in, in chapter 18, after he has heard the gospel of chapter 17, Abraham welcomes the Lord as a close friend. Just look, just compare the difference in his actions between the two. He welcomes the Lord with a meal in his home. And there's a clue in the text that tells us that this is what is happening. Look down at verses 1 and 2. So it's a, it's, a, it's a boiling hot day. Abraham's resting by the shade of the tent, and the Lord appears to him. And then look at verse 2. It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Moses didn't have to say that. He could have just said, the Lord appeared to him. But he adds this, Abraham lifted up his eyes. And we have learned, as we have read Genesis, that this lifting up of the eyes is an important action. Remember, Genesis is show more than it is tell. And we're being shown here something important here. When the, when the Lord is involved, it's an indicator that someone lifting up the eyes, it's, it's an indicator that someone is seeing with eyes of faith. So if you remember way back in chapter 13, the Lord commands Abraham to lift up his eyes. And Abraham lifts up his eyes. And what does he see? He sees God's promises out before him. He sees the land of promise in its entirety with these eyes of faith. Then in chapter 15, the Lord commands him, look up at the stars. And he looks up at the stars and he believes the Lord's promise. And it's counted to him as righteousness. Here in chapter 18, it is with these uplifted eyes that he sees the Lord as his dear friend. And he begins to, to bring about this uh, sprint of great hospitality. We're going to see a little bit later in chapter 22, Abraham will lift up his eyes and he will see the ram caught in the thicket. That is a substitute for Isaac. And this phrase, lifts up his eyes, continues all throughout the Old Testament. When Joshua lifts up his eyes, he's able to see the angel of the Lord ready to go to battle for God's people. In 1 Chronicles, David lifts up his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord ready to bring judgment on Jerusalem. In the book of Daniel, the prophet lifts up his eyes and sees a divine figure before him. All of these people, all of them with uplifted eyes, are seeing with eyes of faith. And by the grace of God, Abraham has been given these eyes of faith. So when he lifts up his eyes in this way, 
He sees the presence of God with him. And that's what I think this is. You have the Lord, the, the, what is the angel of the Lord, the, the, the manifestation of the second person of the Trinity there and two angels with him. The Lord is there. He sees the presence of God with him. And because he has experienced the grace of God, having heard the good news of the coming Messiah, he responds to this presence of God differently than he did in chapter 17. Instead of responding with the fear of judgment, Abraham welcomes the arrival of the Lord with friendship. This is especially notable given what comes next in the chapter. Because what we, what, if, if you've read the entirety of chapter 18, you know that the Lord has come to bring judgment. He's bringing these wicked cities of the plains, they're just deserts. The Lord has made a friendship to Abraham, and Abraham welcomes him here. You have friendship, judgment coming. We're going to talk more about that next week. But Abraham welcomes him here with this, um, this is the first fast food meal that we've seen in history. Look at the verbs and the adverbs that Moses uses in writing this. Verse 2, when he saw them, he ran to meet them and he bowed down to the earth. In verse 3, he humbly invites the Lord and these two angels for the meal. They accept. And then you get to verse 6 and there's more running around. He runs quickly to the tent, pops his head in, gives a, a rush order to Sarah to quickly make cakes with the best quality flour in the house. And, and that we kind of skim over the amount of food that's being prepared here. This is that three C's, says, whatever it is. That's equivalent to about seven gallons of flour. So those of you who have made bread or cakes before, how, how much bread is that? That's a lot. This is a lot. This is more than these people could possibly eat. He runs, verse 7, he ran to the herd, took a tender calf, gave it to the servant, and prepares it quickly. Right? So running and quickly and fast and all these verbs and adverbs that tell us this is a, this is a, a much haste is taking place here. And then as if no time has passed, though anyone who's ever cooked a meal knows that a lot of time is probably passed here. Uh, it takes me all day long to butcher one animal, so they're probably faster than I am. But still, this is fast. We know this was probably several hours. Uh, he sets it all before the Lord and his two messengers, and then kind of finally catches his breath. He stands by, ready to bring out more food and more food and more food. He's just a great host. All this joyfully welcoming hospitality put on by Abraham for the Lord. And you just have to ask, okay, well, why are you doing all this, Abraham? Because of the gospel. The Lord has shown Abraham his grace in Christ, told him of the promised Messiah who's to come, and that Abraham's hope is now in, in that offspring who is to come. The Lord has entered into covenant relationship with Abraham, and Abraham knows now the Lord is my friend. But we need to see it is only through Christ, it is only through hoping in Christ that we can know the friendship of the Lord. Because it is only through Christ that we can know the love of God. 
So it should come as no surprise that when these promises to Abraham are fulfilled, when the Christ comes and we get to the New Testament, there are several people who have meals with the Lord. That, that, that shouldn't shock us. And what we observe in the New Testament are, are two categories of people who are invited into table fellowship with the Lord. There is, there's one, the first, there's, there's, this, there's a heart that welcomes the Lord into fellowship, like Abraham does here. A heart that is at peace with God and is in, in friendship with God because it's a heart that has experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God. This heart wants to serve the Lord in response with gladness. But then there's another category. There's several, actually, but just two that we're going to look at today. Today. There's another category of a heart that does not welcome the Lord into fellowship. So the first category is best seen in the story of Zacchaeus that we read earlier. Whom Jesus calls a son of Abraham, not accidentally. We saw Zacchaeus in our scripture reading this morning. Luke tells us that Jesus, much like the Lord here in our passage, is is passing through through town. He's going through Jericho. And, And Zacchaeus, much like Abraham in our passage, is eager to see him. Jesus approaches Zacchaeus, calls him down from the tree, and in response, you see this same haste to meet the Lord. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus hurried down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he knows he's a sinner. He knows he is not worthy to be in the presence of God, but he has been shown the mercy of Christ. And as a result of Christ's mercy, Zacchaeus received the Lord with gladness, with repentance of sins. And the Lord ate with him as a friend. And Luke's point in Jesus' message as well is that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. And that, that is both of these men, Zacchaeus and Abraham, realized their sin. We see Abraham's realization of his sin in chapter 17. And their need for God's mercy. And when God showed them that mercy, they received him with gladness and joy and hospitality. That's that's the first category. Very simple, isn't it? Christ has shown you mercy. Repent of your sins. Receive Christ with gladness. But there's another group that we see in the New Testament. And this is a people who once know or knew of the Christ, but they don't know their need. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to seven churches and all have various issues. One of these churches, though, the church in Laodicea, is rebuked for their self-sufficiency. This church mistakenly believed that they were doing fine on their own. So compare that to Zacchaeus, who knows he's not doing fine on his own, and Abraham, who knows he's not doing fine on his own. The church in Laodicea thought they were doing fine on their own. They, they were materially well off, they had prospered, and in their minds they needed nothing. And as a result of their confidence, they had begun to see themselves as spiritually self-sufficient. No one in their neighborhood would have looked at them and said, those people need Jesus. Rather, First Baptist Laodicea put on such airs that when people looked at them, they would say, those people really have it together. 
And when they would look at themselves, they would say, we do. We really do have it all together. We've got money in the bank account. Our kids go to good colleges. We live in comfortable homes. We wear nice clothes. We eat good food. And the Lord, the one who, if if, if you turn to Revelation 3, you would see it there. Revelation 3 says, the Lord is the faithful and true witness in that passage. That is, he is the one, the Lord is the one who knows what's actually going on in the hearts of the Laodicean church. The Lord Jesus tells them, church, you need, you need salve for your eyes. You are obviously blind to what's going on in your church. You cannot see your, your, your true spiritually needy condition. And then you know what happens next. Jesus says in that famous verse, uh, Revelation 3.20, I'm standing here outside your church and I'm knocking on the door, asking to come in and do what? Eat with you. I want to eat with you. Just like Abraham had that meal with the Lord and Zacchaeus had that meal with the Lord, Jesus is telling the Laodicean church, I want to have a meal with you. But you can't even hear me knocking. Because you're so satisfied in yourselves. See the difference between these, these two groups? Abraham and Zacchaeus receiving Christ's mercy with gladness because they know that they are sinners in need of God, Christ's mercy. So they receive Christ and open up their table to eat with him. And then here's Laodicea who can't even hear Jesus pounding on the door and pounding on the door because of the noise of their own self-congratulation. And so I had to ask, and I must ask you, if Jesus shows up at your house, which of these groups are you? The broken and repentant sinner, like Abraham and Zacchaeus, thrilled to welcome in your merciful Savior who wants to eat with you? Or are you so self-confident that you don't really need him and you don't miss him? And we put it square like that. And you say, of course, well, I'd rather be Abraham and Zacchaeus, right? Yes, nod your heads, please. <laughs> yes. But I honestly think because of, because of our pride, we're tempted, at least, to be more like Laodicea, aren't we? We would prefer not to admit our brokenness. We would prefer not to talk about our sin. We would rather put on the church person mask who only occasionally needs prayer for our sore back, but is silent about what's really going on. Silent about hurting marriages, silent about parenting struggles, silent about our loneliness, our anxiety about the future. We'd rather not talk about the messes we've made and the consequences of our past sins that are catching up with us. But friends, listen. The Abraham and Zacchaeus response to the Lord necessitates a heart of repentance and neediness. It necessitates, at the very least, acknowledgement of our sin and sinfulness, a, a confession of our brokenness, And it necessitates joy in knowing that only Christ is the one who fills us. Laodicea has it all together on the surface. 
They put on the church face. Laodicea does not eat a meal with the Lord, though. Let me tell you something that has disappointed me. Not in you, in myself, okay? Something that disappoints me about my own pastoral leadership is that I've been here four and a half years now, and occasionally I will hear a Christian say, sometimes they're not sure if they should take the Lord's Supper because they feel like they're not worthy. When I hear that, and listen, if you said that, I'm not looking down on you. I look, I look at myself. I say, what have I done as pastor to create a culture where Christians think that they need to be good enough to take the Lord's Supper? When the Lord of hospitality comes in our midst and gives us his bread and cup in friendship, he does that because we are sinners who know our only hope is in him. The bread and cup are signs of his mercy, not our goodness. The receiving the Lord's hospitality toward us necessitates we know we are sinners who need his forgiveness. So if I have in any way given the impression that we somehow achieve worthiness to take the supper, I'm sorry. We are never good enough. Jesus always is. It's his supper. So, beloved church, let us constantly be turning away from our Laodicean temptations and toward sitting at that table with Zacchaeus and Abraham and all the other rotten people who know that they're rotten people that need Jesus. And sitting there is Jesus, eating and drinking and laughing and waiting for us to repent of our self-sufficiency and repent of our pride and join him in true friendship. Amen? Let's let, let that always be who we are as a church and as a people. So this, this meal in Genesis 18 shows us the friendship that Abraham has with the Lord, and that friendship comes through Abraham's repentance of sin in chapter 17 and his hope in Christ. In chapter 17, I hate that we have to break these chapters up this way. Because if you missed last week, you're like, where are you seeing that? It's all last week. So you have to go back and listen to chapter 17's sermon. But only in the hope of Christ does Abraham know the love of God and the friendship of God and the table fellowship of God. In the second half of our passage, we move from the Lord's friendship toward Abraham to his grace toward Sarah. Now, Sarah, again, this is all one big story. So Sarah, as we're reading the big story, still remains to be dealt with after the events way back in chapter 16. Now, if you remember in chapter 16, there was this huge mess that was created by lots of human sin. And we were paralleling that to the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. And in chapter 16, the order of sin goes, Sarah then Abraham, and then Hagar. So Sarah sinned, Abraham sinned, and then Hagar sinned. And then the Lord has dealt with them in the order of our text in reverse order. So first he mercifully appeared to Hagar at the end of chapter 16, and he restored her. And then he mercifully appeared to Abraham in chapter 17 and brought him the good news of the coming child of promise, and Abraham was restored. 
But as far as that unfolding story is concerned, Sarah remains to be dealt with. So if you'll remember, in the garden, way back in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid from the Lord. They hid. The Lord came out and he, he said, where are you? Very important question. Similarly, here, the Lord shows up. Looking at verse 9 particularly. The Lord shows up. Sarah is behind the wall of the tent. It doesn't say that she's hiding, but it shows. Remember, more show than tell in Genesis. It shows that she is. And the Lord asks Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Now God asks very few questions in Genesis. And so far, the questions that we've seen from him are, Adam, where are you? Cain, where is your brother? Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? And each of those questions, God knows the answer to. And in each of those questions, God is responding to their sin. So when God asks, where is, there's that where question, where is Sarah, your wife? God is dealing, I believe, here with Sarah's sin. He knows Sarah is behind the tent door. Tent door, he doesn't have to ask. But when he asks this question, he does it in such a way that he is, one, reminding us he's dealing with sin and reminding Sarah she is Abraham's wife. Look at that question again. Where is Sarah your wife? Sarah, as we have understood marriage in Genesis, Sarah is in the one flesh union with Abraham. And the faithless idea to introduce Hagar into that union was wrong. I didn't mention this last week, but but God had emphasized this same issue when he spoke to Abraham in chapter 17. Look back at 17 verses 18 and 19. This is when Abraham's pleading that Ishmael would would be the, the, the chosen one. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look at verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. God was rebuking Abraham there when he identified Sarah as the wife. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord made marriage, the union of one man, one woman. And through that marriage, the Lord blessed them and said he would multiply the earth or multiply the people throughout the earth through marriage. And when Abraham asked the Lord to make Ishmael the one through whom that blessing would come, the Lord says, no, Hagar's not your wife. That's not what I created marriage for. Created marriage for the blessing to come through that. So, Abraham, Hagar's not married to you. Sarah is. She's your wife. The promise comes through marriage. The promise comes through the wife. And so here again, this time with Sarah listening, God says, where's Sarah, your wife? And he's softly reminding this, this dear couple of the one flesh union that he has brought together that no man or woman or servant can tear asunder. And Abraham says, she's in the tent. And then interestingly, the Lord doesn't say, well, have her come out. Instead, he just keeps talking because he knows she's already listening. He, he continues to speak in this knowing way. And with Sarah listening, he repeats his promise from chapter 17. Look at chapter 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah your wife, there it is again. He's going to say that over and over and over again because he wants to show them the promise comes through marriage. 
Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And incidentally, it is the devil's attack throughout Genesis to wreck marriage, isn't it? So this is God's promise. Satan seems to know this, and he keeps trying to get in between. But the Lord maintains his promise and his faithfulness. So Sarah, listening, the Lord repeats the promise. Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And then look at her response in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. After I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? There's a play on words here that we miss in the English. But that word, the Hebrew word for pleasure there is edna. And it's very similar, especially in spelling, to the Hebrew word for Eden. So Eden, if you remember way back when we were studying chapter 2, Eden means this, the garden of delight, the garden of pleasure. And here is Sarah being told of the coming child of promise, who we know ultimately brings about the new Eden. And Sarah laughs at God's plan and asks herself, is such a pleasure could truly come in her life? And there is, this is just rich with cynicism, isn't it? In her own cynical answer, what is happening in her heart is she's saying, no. This, this is too good for someone like me. She's not laughing with the Lord. Or this, is a, this is a harsh laughter, a bitter laughter. She's laughing at the Lord. Because Sarah has become hopeless in her old age. She has given up on joy. And if we were to just look at her life from a human perspective, we would say, she has reason for this. Let's just review Sarah's life, okay? She's moved somewhere around a thousand miles from her family. She's not going to see them ever again. Everything that she knows, all that she's grown up with, it's likely she's moved from there to a, a, a place where people don't even speak the same language as her. She's, she's lived throughout her life with the external societal shame of being a barren woman who everyone must think there's something is wrong with her. She's cursed somehow. And now she's 30 some odd, 30 some odd years after menopause, after the, the way of women as, as the text describes it. There's no humanly possible way she can have a baby. And so that, that, that wound of her barren womb is now scarred over and is occasionally irritated, isn't it? When she came into this foreign land, she endured a severe famine and survived. She, she was sold, let's not forget this, sold by her own husband into the harem of Pharaoh in Egypt, and she survived. She saw that household that she was living in at that time plagued with something horrendous. The text doesn't tell us, but she survived. She was rescued from Egypt by God's power. And then not long after, her husband goes off to fight a war against four very wicked armies, and he survives only by God's power, but you can imagine what she went through during that time. Add to that the recent chaos that, that her sin has introduced into her home. And here's Ishmael. She can see him. He's running around. Add to that the knowledge that she's married to a foolishly passive man. And not to mention, for the last 23 years, she's been living in a tent on land that does not belong to her. 
So she and Abraham have been entirely reliant on the good graces of, of Mamre and the other Canaanites living in that area. But they could, theoretically, demand that she leave at any moment. She doesn't have security. And any woman knows that's one of her greatest needs. So for much of the last couple decades of Sarah's life, she has been in survival mode. And here is the one who started all of this mess by calling her husband away from her home. And that man, the Lord, is saying, she's going to have a child. And she's like, you just stop. She doesn't believe it. She can't believe it. It's too much for her. She has grown used to self-pity. And so she would rather continue to wallow in self-pity than receive from the Lord his good promise. And so in her bitter hardness, she laughs at him. She laughs at God. I want to just speak to a moment for all of us whose hearts have become calloused like this. To some degree, a lot of us are this way, but this, this particularly is a sin that affects people whose hearts have endured years and years and years of disappointment. Brothers and sisters, beware of a calloused heart. You, you might have good reason to expect the worst. Sarah has good reason to expect the worst. In your youth, you may have had high expectations of how your life would turn out. How your kids would turn out. How your grandkids and great-grandkids would turn out. But those expectations have not been met. You have been beaten down and beaten down and beaten down by life and by disappointment. And on top of it all... Your, your body is now failing you. The joy doesn't come naturally anymore. And so your face is permanently set to grimace. Beloved, beware of a calloused heart. Beware of a heart that is not soft to the good news of Christ. A calloused and cynical heart will like a black hole, suck the joy from your life and from the joy, the joy from the lives of those around you and turn you further and further inward on yourself. So instead of wallowing in self-pity, take those difficult experiences. And I, yes, those were difficult experiences. They were. It's okay to admit that they were. But take what the Lord in his sovereign wisdom has ordained for you and thank him. Thank him that he has humbled you and brought you to such weakness. And in your God-given humility and weakness, turn to him in dependence and joy and know Christ all the greater. And when you find that impossible, when years and years of spiritual drought has you stuck, then let the rest of this passage be an encouragement to you because what the Lord does for Sarah is an encouragement. Watch what happens. So Sarah has responded to the God of all creation 
with bitter laughter. She's finished hoping for any good in this life. And, and, and laughing is her, is her self-defense mechanism here. Do you see that? But, but what I want you to see is what, that the Lord is not done with her. He's not through with her. He doesn't just turn and say, well, I was here to bless you. But you've got a bad attitude today, so see you later. Now look what he does. He presses in closer, doesn't he? He challenges her. He doesn't leave her alone. Look at verse 13. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Why did Sarah laugh? He's confronting her squarely. Remember, he knows she's listening. He's talking to Sarah through Abraham. He confronts her with x-ray vision. He pierces straight into her heart and says, why don't you believe me? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And that word hard or difficult, some of your Bible translations say elsewhere in the Bible, that word is translated as wonderful. And I think that's probably more consistent with what's happening here. This word is often used to describe the wonders of God, the the miraculous actions of God on behalf of his covenant people. And I think... What we see here with the name that the Lord reveals himself with, that that's what's happening. That the name he chooses, look what he says, he calls himself Lord here. And and he chose that in speaking to Sarah out of all the name options that that have been revealed to us so far in Genesis. So far we have seen God, Elohim. There is God Almighty or El Shaddai that we saw last week. There is God Most High, El Elyon that we saw a few weeks ago. And then there's this covenant name. The name that he relates with. His personal name. Yahweh, the Lord. And that's the name he uses here with Sarah. So essentially, here's what he's asking. Just rephrased in, 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 in my own translation. He's saying, is there anything that your father would not do for you? When God has sworn himself to his covenant people, there is nothing, nothing that will keep him from accomplishing his purposes in those people. Not Sarah's age, not her years of infertility, not her post-menopausal womb and lack of ovum, not even her doubt will keep the Lord from accomplishing his purposes. None of that is outside of God's sovereign power to provide for those who he is in covenant relationship with, including Sarah. For those on whom the Lord has set his love, nothing is too wonderful. The Lord will accomplish his purposes in Sarah, even when her faith is as weak as her womb. There is a a lie that has become popularized in churches. And the lie says, if you have enough faith, then you can accomplish great things. Have you heard that before? As if the Lord will only accomplish his purposes in our life if our faith is strong enough and if we believe hard enough. He wants to bless you. He wants to make you rich. He wants to make you healthy. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. He's just waiting on you to show that you have enough faith. That hogwash. If you are reading books that teach this, Burn them. If you are watching TV preachers that say this, 
turn it off. If you have a tendency yourself to think these things, friend, listen, you have been deceived. The whole point of this story is to show us it's not about Abraham's strength and ability to do anything on his own, but it's also not about Sarah's willpower or even about the measure of her faith. Sarah here, we are being clearly shown, is a smoldering wick. She's a bruised reed. She has been beaten down and she can't even hope anymore. She can't even hope that anything good can come. And the Lord takes her broken heart in his hands and says, I'm going to make you the mother of the promise. And in her bitterness, she laughs at him. He doesn't give up because his promise is not dependent on her. Instead, he says, why are you laughing? And you would think at this point, when we get to verse 15, about, you would think at this point, the ice in Sarah's heart would have begun to melt. After all, the all-powerful God of creation has been speaking to her, and we have seen him do wondrous things all throughout Genesis. Based on what we know of God now, I half expected the next sentence to say, and Sarah fell on her face and she began to weep and all of her sorrow melted away and she began to hope in the Lord. Or maybe, maybe something like, and Sarah stepped outside the tent and bowed down and kissed the Lord's feet and said, forgive me, Lord, I should not have laughed at you. I believe you now. Don't you kind of hope that that was going to happen? Don't you wish that that would have happened? I thought it was going to. But that's not what happens. Sarah shows she, even with the Lord speaking to her, correcting her forcefully, she's still struggling and she's still defensive. Look what she says. She lies to God and says, I didn't laugh. I'm grateful that the Spirit through Moses gives us some commentary here. And says the reason she did this was because she was afraid. Do you see that? Verse 15, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. You can see with her response here that protecting herself is still her first instinct, isn't it? She's afraid. She's, it just has occurred to her that she's in the presence of someone who can read her mind. And she's a little startled. When the Lord calls on her, calls, calls her out for what's, what's happening in her heart. And so she responds with these survival instincts that she's crafted to perfection throughout her 90 years of life. If this person could read my mind, then he could probably also smote me. I better make good and deny everything. No, I didn't laugh. But how does the Lord respond? He presses in again. Oh, she lied to me. Oh, well, then I've got to leave. Bad attitude today, I've got to leave. She lied to me, I've got to leave. No, no. In, in his mercy to Sarah, the Lord confronts her again. He doesn't give up on her. He doesn't give up on the broken one. He says, yes, you did laugh. She has put up her defenses to keep the Lord from bringing any hope of joy into her life. 
for the Lord is not satisfied to let Sarah stay miserable. He wants to turn her sadness to joy, and he will do it whether she likes it or not. She has laughed. Yes, but her laughter, and this is the irony of this whole story, her laughter is not true, joy-filled belly laughter. The kind that, you know, you hear your two-year-old laugh with, that where they just can't stop. That's not Sarah's laughter here. Her laughter is this scoffing, sarcastic laughter. The kind of laughter of someone who is hurting. And the Lord presses her and presses her, and then he breaks through to her heart and says, I will bring you true laughter. You will know joy again. I will bring you Isaac. And though Sarah is a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, the Lord is faithful to Sarah. I don't do this much, but skip ahead to Genesis chapter 21 because you have to see the end. Because the end is not the Lord just rebuking Sarah and then he never sees her again. Genesis chapter 21 verse 1 The Lord had said, right, I'm going to come to you again in a year and you'll have a baby. Genesis chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now we're going to get to this chapter when we get to it. And this is one of the ones I'm looking forward to preaching. But I want you to see that this this little back and forth between God and Sarah is not the end. The Lord is faithful to Sarah, even in her state of total weakness and helplessness and sourness. And he brings laughter to her life again. And that is the good news for calloused hearts. Because while you may have been beaten down and while your faith may be weak and maybe it is hard for you to believe anything good will ever happen again and all you're looking forward to is the last beat of your heart. The Lord is faithful to you. Even to you. He was faithful to sarcastic, bitter, sour Sarah. Not because of Sarah, but because he's faithful to his word. So though you are weak, the Lord is strong. And though you feel dry and empty and bitter, his love is endlessly sweet, and he turns bitter waters into springs of refreshment for all those around. The Lord is a friend here to those whose faith is rich in Christ, right? We see that in Abraham. Abraham's faith is just fresh and new in Jesus Christ. He's looking forward to the, to the offspring of the promise because he knows he doesn't have to be blameless. The Christ will be. And so he welcomes the Lord to his table with gladness. And the Lord is his friend. But the Lord is also a friend to those whose faith is weak and nearly non-existent. He will not snuff you out. Because the promise of the Christ is also for you. Amen? Let's praise him.